Hi in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon. Welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground and mortality, because after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading is edited and adapted from Galatians 6, verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. In other words, God will reward preachers and shepherds for their work, and there will be a harvest, both in their own lives and in the lives of their sheep. It's easy to lose sight of the goodness of God while in the midst of daily tasks and weekly commitments, but God does everything to produce more of his goodness here on earth. The work of the pastor is surely one of the avenues that brings glory to God. With me today is a pastor. We have Pastor Patrick, and I I want him to go ahead. I want our lovely Reverend Patrick to give me his name here after I introduce him. I don't want to botch his last name. He's the Director of Chaplaincy and Volunteers for Parkview Health in the Fort Wayne, Indiana area. He's also the author of two really straightforward books. One's entitled How to Talk with Sick, Dying, and Grieving People When There Are No Magic Words to Say. And then our second book, One and one way, so that's 101 ways to find meaning in suffering. Very straightforward. You see these on the shelf, you know what you're going to get. Patrick, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on today. And give us your last name. Last name is Riki. Oh, you know what? I was going to dive in and say that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. So our Reverend Patrick says he prefers to go by Patrick. So Mr. Riki here, I want to talk to you and ask you, how did you get into hospital chaplaincy? Yeah, it's a good question. It wasn't my intention. Um, you know, that's kind of how things work, I think, sometimes. But after about 15 years in parish ministry, which I enjoyed most of, um, I was in a, involved in a small church that I was leading at the time and enjoying that, but um, also looking to see what else was available. And um, had a had a, a job posting pop up at Parkview for a, a part-time chaplain, and one of the things I knew about my personality was that the hallway chit-chat um, that can sometimes be a part of what you do when you're a minister in a church setting, I stunk at that. was just not good at that. Um, I could do it, but I felt depleted by that, the, sort of the, the normal, everyday um, conversations that, that aren't necessarily leading someplace deeper um, was not, not in my wheelhouse. Um, and what I really preferred on a Sunday morning, even when I was at large, large congregations, was to find one or two people and um, have a long conversation with them um, instead of moving from person to person. Like I think most really successful ministers are good at doing that, finding their way to, to um, go from one person to the next and make everybody feel so welcome. And, and I, I always knew that I was better at those, those one-on-one, those deeper conversations. And I thought to myself, boy, when you go into a hospital, and my experience um, up to that point in being in church ministry, you go into a hospital and there's not as much chit-chat. Um, you're talking about pretty serious things pretty quickly. Um, sometimes as soon as I had walked in, I um, remember one of my experiences when I was a very young man in, in youth ministry, and most of the kids that I worked with were they were kids, you know, and so I didn't see them in the hospital a lot. They were young and healthy, and 
Um, one day, it was my day um, as a staff member to go to the hospital, and um, on, the, on the board where we kept everybody's names of people that were in the hospital was one name, and Gladys was in the hospital, and it just, it just said uh, a few words. It said, Gladys, broken hip. And I thought as a, a young um, person, I thought, well, that's kind of typical old people. You know, old people fall, they break their hips, you know, that kind of thing. So I thought, okay, this is straightforward. I'll get a cup of coffee on my way out. I'll stop and visit her, no big deal. Um, and when I went in, uh, I could see that Gladys had been crying. And so even though I wasn't terribly in tune or, or mature at that point, I knew um, I knew better than to make light of it or to, to try to move through quickly. And so I, I grabbed a chair and I pulled it up close and I sat down and introduced myself. And Gladys um, turned her face towards me, but the, the tears kept coming. And after a little bit of conversation, I, I said, only thing I could think of to say, I said, Gladys, how can I pray for you? And she said, through her tears, she said, Sonny, just pray and go be with Jesus. And I thought, you've just broken your hip. <laughs> you know, this is, in my opinion, that was like, I had broken a bone before. It wasn't something I wanted to die over. And um, so I stumbled through a prayer that was probably not terribly helpful. And but I, I think that signaled to me at that point, um, spiritual conversations in the hospital are different than spiritual conversations in in normal everyday life. And, and I'm sure, Elizabeth, you see in your work, too, in the funeral home setting, it's just a different type of conversation right off the very bat. Yes. Like you say, too, you do a little bit better one-on-one than maybe having the flock. And knowing that hospital work is probably not going to be necessarily so upbeat. What made you think at such a young age that you possibly would enjoy chaplaincy? You know, they, they asked me some difficult questions in the interview because you, you really kind of need to know who are we getting ourselves into here, if who's going to go into these rooms and, and speak as a chaplain to our patients in the middle of the night after a death or something like that. And, um, and the questions, one of the questions was, tell us about a proud moment that you've had in ministry. And one of mine was um, a young man who was a senior in high school. He was my intern at the time, and um, his mom had been diagnosed with cancer in the fall of his senior year. And she was a smart person. She had a medical background herself, and she knew she wasn't gonna um, she wasn't gonna overcome that that sickness. And um, but my intern, you know, was like most young people. It didn't quite sink in with him. And the day that she was in hospice. And I visited her and knew that um, from what the nurses had told me that she wasn't going to make it long. Um, her son was at his senior prom. And um, I went to, went to where the prom was, not knowing for sure if this was the right thing to do or not at the time, but um, found an administrator who, who brought him out. And I said, we need to go and leave your prom and go see your mom. And um, just a few hours later, she died with him at her side. And and so they asked me that question in the interview for chaplaincy, you know, what, what's a proud moment for you? And that was the moment that came up for me, um, not, you know, preaching a great sermon or leading a great program. And um, they said, you know, if that's the kind of thing that you're proud of for your ministry, then hospital chaplaincy uh, might be the right place for you. So give us that overview of what chaplains do. We've talked about going to the hospital. We talk about possibly one-on-one going to people when they're having issues happen and then giving quiet comfort, what else would you list in there? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I actually have a little section where I, I tried to write this out because it's a hard question to answer. And so if it's okay, I'd like to read an excerpt from the beginning of, of that second book that you mentioned, The 101 Ways to Find Meaning in Suffering. Excellent. The two dozen hospital chaplains in our department have each had a similar experience. Conversation begins with a stranger, and that stranger asks the common question, where do you work? When they hear that the chaplain works at a hospital, they ask the next logical question, and what do you do there? I'm a chaplain, they respond. Well, that's interesting. What does a chaplain do at the hospital? Probably most of our chaplains, most of whom are introverts, would like to pass on this question because there's not really an easy answer. What should we say? We could answer in many ways. As chaplains, we respond when a 16-year-old has been shot. We respond when a mother has been given a terrifying diagnosis. We respond when a grandfather's had a heart attack or a grandmother's had a stroke. We respond when a mom has to say goodbye to her baby, whether that baby has lived in mom's womb for just six weeks or that baby is a senior citizen himself. We respond when a mom wants her dead baby baptized. We respond when police are hovering around the toddler because the grieving father might actually be the perpetrator of the offense that led to this emergency room visit. We respond when the family is singing a last hymn before removing medical interventions that are keeping their loved one breathing. Our chaplains serve people facing these losses and more every single shift, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. We know death. We have seen grief. We know pain. If all of your worst nightmares and some of your greatest hopes were combined to create a great box office movie, chaplains would not be a character in the movie. They would be the audience. We're seldom the characters in that story, but we observe, care, and support you and yours with all our hearts. When a whole team of professionals observes this kind of pain as a part of their work every day, they have to believe that there can be meaning found in the midst of that suffering. I am so glad you read that. That is so complete. It gives us so much more of a rich picture of what chaplains really do, because again, the things I listed off to begin with were just sort of the obvious ones. And what you said about being the audience, that idea that maybe your job is just to be quiet and listen. And I love the notice that you'd made in in your book prior, how somebody actually found you to be the correct person and hire you for the job of the chaplaincy is because you did nothing. You just merely <laughs> sat there. You could hold a hand. You could put your eyes on the person and listen. And what a beautiful gift that is. I, I do have to say, I did start talking a little bit more after I got hired, but who, who would know that um, just keeping your mouth shut was a good way to get a job? <laughs> yeah, right. And also to get one where people are thinking you're possibly preaching at them or leading them to Jesus, or you're the person sure. who has the Bible, and your job is to thumb through and find the appropriate Bible verse. Maybe your job is just to sit and listen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and that's as a question we get a lot of times, especially from, from certain sides of the Christian perspective of, do you, do you preach at people? You know, you talk to people right before they die, and you make sure that they've got their beliefs in order and they're right with God. And um, the, the easy answer would be that's not exactly what chaplains do, but I think a more specific answer is we, don't, we view ourselves more as the presence of God than the Word of God. Um, and so we're there to be that compassionate presence, um, not necessarily to be the one there to proclaim something or try to make them make a change, you know, at the last minute, but to just to be that, that presence, like you said, to, to be present with them in the midst of their difficult time. 
in your book, 101 Ways to Find Meaning and Suffering, you truly have lists in here and you have actions to take. And there's one section where you talk about 33 more ways to find meaning. And it's things in there that people don't necessarily think about. A wonderful thing to do is what about taking care of the pet of somebody who is in the hospital visiting somebody. We have to take care of the person who's also doing the visiting, right? How can we bring music into the room that the person might love? And something that I try to encourage people, especially at funerals or when somebody is transitioning out of this world, photos, having somebody appointed to take photos. And even if they're on your phone or even if you feel like it's a sensitive moments and it's a little bit uncomfortable to be up close and personal with somebody with your cell phone, gathering those photographic evident moments are so very special to really have that whole journey. So I find this book so great because it really finds the meaning as you go along. I think you did a fantastic job with your lists here. Thank you. Yeah, I think you're, what you're capturing is that specific element. You know, it's I think we do. We make a lot of mistakes, and in the United States, at least, I think we do a lot of platitudes and oh, Grandpa always loved the kids, you know, or whatever. Well, that's that's great, but how did Grandpa love the kids? You know, do you have a picture of him holding hands during a prayer with with one of those grandkids? Do you have a a picture of him showing up at when when the, the granddaughter had her ballet recital and he brought her roses? That, like those things, and like you said, the pictures of those things, um, pictures even as they approach the end of life. A specific granular I can I can't hold in my hands grandpa really loved the grandkids I can hold in my hands the photo of that time when he showed up to Ariana's uh, ballet recital and look at this big bouquet of roses and look at the smile on his face and his arm wrapped around her that's something that I can hang on to and provides um, really a connection to grandpa whether he's still here or he's or he has died yeah, and future generations, people who maybe didn't know Grandpa or maybe didn't know Ariana, mm-hmm. this is something that happened in your legacy, in your life, with your peoples. In your book, you talk about the three phases of spiritual growth and as they relate to serious illness and death and grief. Tell me about those phases and why you found them specifically so important. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is what I've found most people resonate with, and when people when get, provide feedback on reading the book, um, you know, this is this is what's meant the most to them and been the most helpful. So, um, the first, so thinking about our phases of spiritual growth, you know, one of the questions I love to ask is, does your spiritual life look the same today as it did 20 years ago? And of course, almost all of us who've been alive for at least 20 years would say, absolutely not. Our spiritual life has changed significantly. Well, why has it changed? Um, you know, not necessarily how has it changed. That's different for every one of us. But the why has a lot of common themes, and a lot of it is pain and going through difficult times. So I think, um, you know, the, the first phase is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I think in Jeremiah 29, 11, we had a, I had a nephew born today, and his picture was posted, and Jeremiah 29, 11 was posted along with his picture. You know, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and to give you a future and a hope, not to harm you, but to give you that future. And that's a great, that's, that's certainly a, a brand new baby's uh, phase that they're in. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. We think of this for high school graduates, college graduates, anybody who's starting a new phase, somebody who's just come into the Christian faith, you know, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, but of course, there's problems that come. So phase two comes along usually pretty quickly. Um, and the theme for phase two is God will help you to overcome your difficulties in this world. So I think of Romans 8:28. You know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, leading up to Romans 8:37. And all things we are more than conquerors. 
I think this phase probably typifies more of my life than any any of the other three phases. Uh, there's a lot of good sermons, good songs, good books written on overcoming your difficulties through God's help, etc. Um, but I think the slice that we're missing a lot of times is that phase three. And I think phase three comes about when Viktor Frankl talks about um, the the fate that cannot be changed. So does it is it meaningful to say to someone whose loved one has already died, well, God works all things for the good, and you'll, you'll conquer this. Well, they won't exactly conquer it. They'll, they'll find their way to go on, but the loved one has, you know, has died at that point. And so then I think that's when we enter phase three. And the, the, phase, or the theme of phase three is God will help you find meaning in the midst of your suffering. And the verse for this, honestly, I finished the book not really having a verse, having a hard time finding a verse. Um, but the one that's come to me since then is from Ecclesiastes, which probably isn't a surprise for someone who knows that book. But Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And I think when a person's past that stage where they're just trying to overcome, and we've, we've many of us have watched this with, we have a friend who's going through cancer treatments, and they've decided I'm not going to do the treatments anymore. I want to focus on having quality time. At that point, they're looking just for meaning. They're not trying to overcome the difficulty necessarily anymore. They're looking for those points of meaning that we've been talking about. And I think the understanding these phases is important because when you have a family member or a friend that's in phase three, sometimes as that support person, I want them to go back to phase two, right? I want them to talk about overcoming and getting better and getting past this. But maybe I need to go ahead and transition with them and, and help them instead of trying to fight whatever it is. Uh, how do we find meaning in the midst of this pain? Should a person always pray with the person in phase three? Well, I'm going to give probably what isn't a popular answer and say no. Um, should you always pray for a person? Yes, I think so. If you're a praying person, pray for a person. You know, I, I have four kids. Three of them are teenage boys. And the, the boys like to beat each other up, and um, they like to get into conflicts. And, you know, there's times that their mom or I will say, stop it, stop it, you know, and then say, you apologize to your brother. And what will they say? Sorry. You know, do they mean that they're sorry? Not at all. <laughs> they're not sorry at all. And I think sometimes that's a little bit like what we do for people who are in that phase three when we say, let's pray. It's like we're forcing them into a conversation, a connection with God that they're really not ready for, and it's not totally honest. So I think you can ask somebody if they'd like to have prayer. If they say yes and they reach for your hands, pray with them and go for it. If they say, keep me on your prayer list, and they kind of lean away from you, pray for them after you leave the room. <laughs> and if they change the subject totally, it um, means they're just not ready to think about how they're going to talk to God about whatever's going on. In your experience, do you find that it can ever be harmful to wait for a miracle? Mm. I think so. And I think hoping for a miracle is one thing. I think waiting for a miracle sometimes is a defense mechanism um, more than it is an act of faith. And I know that could be hurtful to, to if you've got listeners today who are waiting for a miracle for their loved one continue hoping for that, and I think even praying for that is, is almost always a good thing. But we do need to deal with what's going on today and not just wait and hope that God will fix this somehow, 
Um, you know, how can we make sure that today we're saying the things to our loved one we need to say, um, we're asking the questions we need to ask, like you said, maybe taking pictures, reflecting on pictures, stories, uh, and instead of just playing that game of we're not going to deal with this, um, we're just waiting for our miracle. When you're sharing the compelling stories and the ultimate suffering and overwhelming significance of people in your books, they're both pretty vivid stories. Do you ask for permission first? Do you tell them in the totality? Do you kind of use parts of different stories to kind of come together? How does that flow for you? Well, (laughs) we had an intern last summer who um, read the first book, and later I was talking about one of the stories that while had some parts that was was based on an actual situation it was was a fictional story at its heart and she looked at me she said you mean bethany's not a real person she, you mean bethany's not a real person bethany's not a real person oh she is that was a great a story you did a good job at that one <laughs> well thank you yeah. she is based on a real story um the real oh. story is a little too close to my heart and my life to tell as just on the bare face of it so bethany's a a good stand-in for that real story, and um, so some of them, some of them are, you know, the story obviously that I shared about my intern is, is a true story, um, and so sometimes there's a little bit of, of smoothing out the edges so that you don't hear too much personal about that real person, and then other times it's it's a story that represents something. How about Ed? So Ed has a real corollary that was a very real, difficult sort of HIPAA-protected situation in our hospital that there, there would not be an appropriate way for me to share the actual details, um, but the details of Ed's story um, reflect the same dilemmas and same situation that we actually experienced. Did you find compelled at all to write these books because you found that people wanted to help, but they just didn't quite have the tools and knew what exactly to say to people who were sick or dying or grieving? Absolutely. You know, I think... Uh, egotistically, one of the things that we've said in our chaplaincy department is it'd be really great to gather up all the local pastors and just kind of tell them how to do this <laughs> um, because it's it's hard. It's not something we do every day, and 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 I appreciate your program because it's it's entering into the conversation about death, dying, grief, our own mortality. Like you said, we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. This is a part of all of our stories, um, but we don't do a great job handling it sometimes, and. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think my hope was that people who are going to visit a patient down the hall from my office would take some of these things to heart and instead of feeling like, oh, I've got to go in there and teach her something or um, preach at her or, you know, whatever, that these are, these are different ways to handle that situation that might be more helpful. You've taught workshops in Indiana, and I like how you phrase this. Sickness and death are certainties. But when accompanied by a good pastoral care, they can be cracks through which the light of faith can shine. Mm. I don't remember writing that, but that sounds really good. Someone probably wrote that that maybe about how (laughs) fabulous you are. Maybe. I want to sign up and go to a workshop. I don't remember it all anymore. (laughs) Nice. Do you enjoy teaching these workshops? Absolutely. And honestly, it's a place right now I'm, I'm doing a series of workshops with 14 different churches that all come together and we have these conversations together and... They give me so much hope because at our last one, they were sharing some of the things they do for the way we describe these people that are in phase three. And it's amazing some of the creative things that they're doing. And, um, you know, one church was getting a therapy dog that could be present with people who are in grief and even go to the hospital with the pastoral staff. And I thought, 
oh my goodness, that that's progressive thinking and thinking that's going to really help people and something, you know, I didn't teach them to do that. They came to the table and saying, this is something we're going to do. And um, I think they're, they're, you know, they're, for as many churches as maybe struggle with this topic, there are other churches who are taking it on, you know, full force and really finding their ways to do it. If someone had an interest in attending one of your workshops, how do they find out more information? Do you have a website? Yeah, so patrickreeke.com, and the last name's R-I-E-C-K-E. Patrick's the normal spelling, patrickreeke.com. Um, and there's some good videos on some of the topics we talk about at the um, at the seminars, obviously links to the book, a um, whole, whole long list of free resources that can be printed off there, mailing lists, that kind of thing. So with your first book, Patrick, you talk about the concluding for the meaning that can be found in suffering. Mm. And that's the book, the How to Talk to the Sick People, who the ones that are dying and grieving. And the second book, the um, 101 Ways to Find Meaning and Suffering, it really gives more of a, I guess, a hot approach to finding meaning. What are you hoping to accomplish now with your next book? This is so. This is how I envision that that book. I envision it in two different environments. One of our chaplains works in an outpatient setting for our cancer institute, and so he's working alongside patients and families who have a longer journey. You know, and he's seen them more regularly becoming a part of their lives. And as they get to that point where they're looking for not just asking those questions and having somebody listen to them. But also, like, like you said, these pictures, these specific things, you know, finding some ways to write things out, um, that this would be a, a beginning point where someone can open this book up, they can see some of these really specific ideas, you know, ideas that are so specific as, you know, if you've got someone that you care about, prepay flowers to be delivered to that person on special occasions for the next 10 years, even if you're not around, you know, these these are really specific suggestions. And that that actual suggestion might not help that person in that situation, but maybe it helps them to get to the, the specific thing for them. And then, obviously, I picture it in the hands of, of people who are in that stage of life and considering finding meaning, whether it's just through, you know, they're aging and they're seeing their mortality or they're facing a disease process, they find this list as a way to sort of jettison those ideas that they can find meaning and connectivity with the people around them. And I really love one of your top five picks, writing letters to loved ones. If you can just take about a minute to explain that. Sure. So actually this is based on Bethany and the story, and Bethany's part of the story is based on my uh, very good friend's wife who, um, as she saw the end approaching, took the time to write letters to loved ones. And some of those letters were read at her funeral, and so her voice spoke. She actually had recorded some videos, too. And some of those letters are going to lay in wait. And when her kids are a certain age, they're going to get those letters, or her friends have certain milestones, they're going to get those letters. And so she, even though she's dead, her influence and her voice is still very much alive because she chose to do that. You've been listening to KKPZ, 1330 AM, The Truth. Thank you so much to my guest, Patrick, Reverend, I'll put the Reverend in there, Reverend Patrick Rieke, the author of How to Talk to the Sick, dying and grieving people, and 101 ways to find meaning in suffering. You can find him at patrickreeke.com, P-A-R, excuse me, P-A-T-R-I-C-K-R-I-E-C-K-E.com. And until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other.